Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I went to detox. That was my first time ever in any kind of facility. And I slept. I slept a lot. And I remember the, I don't know if she was a supervisor or who she was. Someone on the higher up came in and said, just checking on me. And she said, you know, I'm glad you're here. I I know about your story, but I want to help you be better because you do have two children still here. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb-Lassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have Sarah Campos. Sarah Campos was born in Arizona and raised in Southern California. She graduated from ASU with a BS in business, a hairdresser by trade. She now runs a full e-commerce business online that supports clean living and wellness. She is the mother to Jackson, Alessa, and Ford. When tragedy struck her family in the form of the death of her eight-year-old son, Jackson, it sent her drinking into a destructive spiral, numbing the pain of the loss she eventually ended up in detox and finally found help in AA and Al-Anon. She is new to the sober community, but in two short years, her sobriety has been completely life-changing, even in the worst circumstances. Today, she gets to live imperfectly, but free from addiction. She honors her son's memory in the love she gives to his siblings. I am absolutely stunned and amazed by Sarah and hope that her story might help those who have gone through a significant loss. Hold on to your seats, friends. This is an incredible episode, but it is a tough one. Sarah is is just remarkable. So proud of her for doing this. So grateful that she was willing to be vulnerable with us. So I give you Sarah Campos. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm really excited and I'm really terrified for our interview because I'm I'm worried. I'm, I know I'm going to sob through this. I'm sure you get that a lot. So let's start with how long have you been clean and sober? Uh, my sobriety date is April 12th, 2020. So right in the thick of it. Right. And had you ever been sober before that? Only when I was pregnant. So okay. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell me a little bit about what your relationship was like growing up, like first time you drank and kind of take us to what your relationship was like before the incident that, that brought you to sobriety. Okay. So I was introduced to alcohol very young. My biological father was a pretty heavy drinker. And I didn't spend too much time with him except for on the summers, but I was in situations like bars and just a lot of drinking. And then I lived with my mom and dad, who I call dad, and they weren't drinkers at all. So my first experience was probably in high school. And I was like a pretty good girl for the most part. But when I did drink, I went full out and I'd be making a full or getting sick. So I kind of reined it in a little bit in high school. Um, because I 
was on the dance team. I wanted to be the captain. I wanted to like do all these things and I knew I couldn't do it drinking. So I think if I really look back, I probably had an idea that when I drank weird things happened, but I wasn't able to exactly pinpoint that. Right. So fast forward college, you know, here and there, but still I needed to like get good grades. So it's like, I still had a pretty good hold of it, meaning I could stop when the alcohol was in my body. I do not think I had a good hold on anything. And then I was actually after college, a few things like related with friends happened. I moved home. I think I didn't know who I was. And I just started hanging out with people who raged. And I really got heavily into my addiction and added new things other than alcohol for probably a good four years until I got pregnant with Jackson. You mentioned that you, you mentioned your dad and then your bio dad. Yes. Was there, so it sounds like you didn't know your bio dad very much, or he wasn't a big part of your life. Can you give us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So he left my mom when I was probably one okay, or not even one. And my mom raised me on her own with my, her, my grandparents. We lived in Arizona. And then when she met my dad, mm-hmm. who I call dad, I was about five. And that's when I moved to California. Okay. So I didn't spend too much time summers, but you know, when I would come home and my mom would be like, you smell like cigarettes. Like, did you even leave that apartment? My dad smoked in the apartment. Like it's, and it wasn't that he was a bad guy. I mean, from my understanding, from what people tell me, I think he was just in his addiction. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and now that like I'm in recovery, I can have grace for that. But as a little kid, it was going from like black and white night and day from my home that I grew up in into this like kind of chaotic scene. Right. And what did you do? Do you remember having thoughts about that around sort of judgments around dad or you like going to see dad? No, I didn't like going there. I remember I ran away with my little brother in a wagon one time down the street because I, (laughs) my stepmom and my dad were like having this party and there was just so much going on. And like, I feel like there was like aggressive male fighting. And I was just like, I got to get out of here. A lot of fighting. And it was just super uncomfortable for me. Was it happy at home with your mom and step or your, your, sorry, your mom and your dad? Yeah. I mean, as far as they were not heavy drinkers, but I think I always in the back of my head, like doing the work now, there was always kind of a not feeling good enough, Mm. not loved enough. I couldn't ever do the right thing. And so I'm sure if I look at my part, I probably was a challenging, stubborn, open. I had a big mouth child and I'm not saying I made the most things easy on them, but I always was needing that approval for them. Right. I felt like I wasn't really getting. So yes, it was a happy home, but I always felt kind of off. Right. Right. And that's something that we talk a lot about in recovery is like, we just, we felt like so many of us didn't feel like we fit in our own skin. Like we were born with our skin too tight, or we just like, we stood out, we didn't fit in somewhere at whether it was at home or at school. And that's a very common feeling that many of us share. Right. So you, with what, as you get to college and your drinking accelerates from there. How, how long between college and the incident that, that we'll talk about in a second? So I think in college, if I'm like full disclosure here, I was prescribed Adderall. Okay. So that helps me be able to drink the way I like to drink and also get stuff done. Mm -hmm. I didn't put the two together until I did. And when I did, I was like, 
I kind of didn't oh. like the alcohol anymore. <laughs> right. I was like, I just want the other stuff. Right, right. And so the alcohol kind of always took a back seat when something else would replace it. Mm-hmm. And then I was really into getting good grades and I was just in a different way flying high, you know? So I would say from college to the incident, well, I wouldn't even start there. I would say from when I got pregnant with Jackson to the incident, I would really struggled. Or maybe before when I got pregnant with him, I just kept going down a really dark path. And oh, I forgot to mention this. My biological father had passed in this time frame and we hadn't spoken. I went to ASU, which was 20 minutes from my real dad in college. And I kind of went there and searched that we would have this magical relationship that we never had. I saw him twice in four years and I just, I was so hurt. And so we stopped talking and then we started talking two months before he had passed every day. He had made a commitment to me that he was going to call me and he did, which I was shocked because he had never made a commitment to me and stuck through it. And then the day before I was flying out to see him, he dies and it, it rocked my world. I believe that it was a alcohol related incident. I was told he got into a car accident. He did not go to the hospital and somehow something in his leg, the injury had traveled up and like, I don't know, took him down. And so that was probably my first trauma of losing someone like close to, well, and that I thought I was going to have a connection with, Mm. like I was waiting my whole life for this, you know? And even though he wasn't there for me, it's like, as a girl, you want to, you want your daddy. Right. And so I was giving him this opportunity and it was just insane. So instead of having this reunion, I went there and I planned a funeral. That was really, really intense for me. And then after that, I just kind of was like in an effort. I've just raged. I drank, I dabbled in drugs. I just kept hanging out with the wrong people and the people that made me feel better about me and my choices. Yeah. So uh, I did that until probably I got pregnant. (laughs) And then obviously I stopped. And from that point, I, you know... Until you got pregnant. So did you, the man that you got pregnant that is Jackson's father. Was Mm. he, was that a relationship? Oh no, he was not a winner. He (laughs) was a, yeah, he was a four month short-lived relationship. Okay. He had supplies that I wanted. Yeah. 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 And we partied together and I, I don't know, I thought I was in love and Mm -hmm. I got pregnant with Jackson in four months and, uh, it was a really big nightmare. He was, so I was more of a drinker, an upper kind of girl. He was the opposite end. And I didn't know anything about those kinds of using Mm -hmm. drugs at all. And so he'd be falling asleep at the dinner table with my folks. And I'm like, oh, he just smokes weed. My mom's like, yeah, no, I don't think that's that. And it was just a nightmare. And he ended up actually just kind of going away, which was great. That was a really hard relationship for me. Um, Very emotionally and physically abusive. He actually tried to uh, kill me when I was pregnant with Jackson. And then I had escaped. And that was pretty much the last time I saw him. And I moved in with my parents. And we lived there for about three years, me and Jax. And what? how old were you when Jackson was born? Was that still in college or after? No, I was 28. So I kind of... I graduated college and then I kind of partied from like 23 to 27. Okay. Okay. So Jackson is the first time that you are sober for a period of time when you're pregnant with him. 
And I would say for the majority of the time I lived with my parents because they weren't drinkers. And mm. I think because they knew my history that was welcome in the home. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Jackson's born and you're there for three years. What happens after those three years and you decide to move out? I move into my own apartment. I, in this time, was able to kind of rebuild my credit and save some money. And it's funny you mentioned this because probably two months into me moving out is when I kind of started having a glass of wine at night. And Mm. it was when he would go to bed that I would get really lonely. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's when I kind of started reaching for the bottle. And even though I knew I always had my parents and they, you know, we probably drove each other crazy living there. They were always there at the home. Right. But now it was like I was by myself. And so I would say my addiction kind of picked right back up. Obviously, it was a little controlled in the beginning, but, you know, the parent, the nights my parents would take him or the weekends, I would go hard. Yeah. And it was just, I like to party. I don't know what it was. It was just like, I had a good time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I get it. Until I, until I didn't. Yeah. Did you know anyone who had ever been in recovery? Had your dad, was that something that you even knew about? Yes. So my best friend, Lindsay, was the only person in our friend group to get sober. I believe it was right after college. And she always was like, you have a drinking problem. I was like, you're (laughs) just mad because you can't drink. You know, like I had that kind of mentality. She would call me out on stuff and I would come up with whatever excuse possible. But yeah, she, she was always there. And then I had known people from high school I would randomly run into who like were sober and had these fun, amazing groups. And I was always like looking at them being like, God, they look like they have a lot of fun. Right. Right. And it just, nothing clicked though. Yeah. Cause the thought of living without alcohol was never a possibility for me at that time. Did it ever occur to you? Like maybe I, my drinking, like, I don't like what happens when I drink Had any of those thoughts crept in yet. Yeah. So I had actually gone to a meeting with Lindsay, like a speaker meeting at the Canyon club. And I was, the speaker was talking, I'm like, God, you really can relate to her. But I was like, but it still didn't really click to where I was thinking, maybe I should take a look at this. And it sounds weird, but looking back, I was so comfortable there. I felt like, oh, this is like a fun place. Right. So yes. And you know, like as I got older, I don't know if this happened for anyone else, but my experience is like my anxiety started to and like the physical attributes of my body when I used and drank became like the come downs and stuff were really yeah. hard and yeah. I would hate myself. So I'd be like, okay, I'm never drinking again, you know, or I'm never doing this again. And then I would. Right. And then we would. So, so yes, the thought crossed my mind, but I didn't have the willingness to ever really consider it right. fully. When did you meet your, your husband, your current husband? Okay. So... Adrian and I actually were in the same fifth grade class. Oh. We went to the same middle school, high school, but I didn't hang out with him. I think because he was kind of like gothic and like patches, skateboarder, hung out with the like early or older crew. And I was like preppy cheerleader, like in it. Like we would have not vibed and we probably didn't cross paths. And I was just searching for like a boyfriend. Like I was ready to like have someone. And Mm -hmm. we were set up on a double date with, from a a couple and we went out and I was just, I'm a, I'm a talker. I couldn't say a word. I was just sweating. And I was so nervous. (laughs) I was just sweating. My my girlfriend's like, I've never not seen you speak. And I just, I said, I think I'm going to marry him. (laughs) 
<laughs> so anyway, that was really kind of the start of it. And we were inseparable after that. And he had to go to Arizona for work for like two months. And we had this kind of phone relationship where we got to know each other and it wasn't like completely like physical. Right. right. And when he came back, it was, let's have this conversation. You know, like I have a son, I'm mm-hmm. not willing to have you meet him until I know like we're kind of in the same page. Yeah. yeah. And so he took like a week to think about it. I don't even know if it was that long, but anyway, he said he was all in. And then I basically moved him in. And I remember, I'll never forget. Jackson came home and was like, is this my dad? And I, he's like, God, he's, he's been working a long time. And like, (laughs) I was dying. And I look at Adrian and he's all fine. It's fine. And I was like, okay. And, and so then every time Jackson be like, yeah, he works a lot. I just got to see him, you know, and he was about three and a half. And that was kind of his personality, just total jokester and really witty. So he came in our life and I would say him and I, Adrian and I, I think I kind of made him more of a heavy drinker because, Mm. you know, when you first start dating someone, you're nervous and all the things and we drink a lot together. It was weird. It was kind of weird because I don't think that's who he was at his core. And maybe that that's his story to tell, but right. I think that he kind of just went along with anything I was doing. I don't know. It was kind of bizarre. What ended up, what is the next thing that happened that brought you guys to recovery? Okay. So fast forward a couple kids later, we moved to Ladera Ranch, California to kind of offer our children like a better life. They have good schools, kind of a family oriented community. Mm -hmm. And I had just given birth to my third. He was five weeks old. And then my daughter was almost two. And it was the day after mother's day in 2019. It was May 13th. It was actually my husband's and my anniversary. We, um, Jackson, I remember he went on a field trip that day, had a good time. He was mad because I didn't go because I had to be home. And he came home from school and he was like, Hey mom, you know, I'm like, I'm nursing, I'm reading a book. I'm drawing these pictures with him. And like, I'm going to go outside and play. And like, we let him go outside all the time and play. That was, he's eight, you know? And so he went out, then he came back because he did about like 20 costume changes per like play session. Right. And my husband had just got home and I was like, Hey, I'm going to take my daughter, the middle one outside, because I don't think we've been outside today. And so I took her to the park and I checked where Jackson always plays at that like little green belt area. And I said, all right, buddy, I'm just going to take her to the park real quick. I'll be back. Did that, came back. He was still doing his thing. And I said, okay, what's your watch say? And he said, it says 6.30, mom. And I said, okay. Or I said, he said six. I said, okay, be home at 6.30. It's dinner. I go upstairs and I, it's like, I remember so vividly these moments and I'm pouring the spinach into like an orange bowl, like a ghetto Tupperware. And I'm trying to prepare all the things for our anniversary dinner. And I hear someone like pounding on my door. And it's weird because here in Ladera, people just kind of come through your garage. And so I open the door and it's my friend, Sarah. And I see her face and I'm like, horror. And I'm like, what? And she's like, it's Jackson. And so I'm running barefoot throughout our community, just not that far, just right down the way. And I, I come, I pull up like physically and I see that he's been hit by a car. It was the gnarliest thing I've ever seen in my life. I knew that it wasn't good, but I didn't think it's what it, what it was. 
And I just, you know, screamed and I freaked out and people were holding me back and I just wanted to get to him. And luckily we had a nurse and some first responders who live in our neighborhood. And so they were working on him, just trying to do what they could to help him. Uh, the driver of the vehicle had pulled over and I was just screaming at her like, what the heck has going on? And then I kind of go into this like state of shock where I'm like shut down. And I just say, someone has to go get Adrian. So Adrian comes out. And at this point, I'm like, where the hell are the paramedics? Where, what's going on? It felt like forever. Yeah. And um, they came, they took him away. Uh, Adrian went with them because I was in two of hysterics. I come back to the home and I'm like, okay, I got to get my pump. I got to get my insurance card. I'm like, I got to get a blanket. It's cold in the hospital. I'm like getting all the things. And I don't know. I honestly don't know how long I was doing that for. I don't feel like it was long, but by the time I got to the hospital, I, I walked in and I was escorted to this room and I opened the door and I just see my husband laying like over my son. And there was no machines. There was no anything connected to him. And I had realized at that moment what, what has happened. And I lost it. I just, I jumped on the table and I just kissed him and I, I held him and I don't know what I was looking for. I just wanted my baby. And it was crazy because like, he looked perfect to me. His face was not like, there was nothing wrong physically. Like, I mean, there was, but it wasn't like he didn't look like himself. And so immediately after I like, I could digest it. I, I looked at the doctor and I said, I want you to, I want you to donate his organs. I want you to do I want something good to come of this. I don't know. It's like these weird flashes of like transfer. And like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, like go do it now. Cause I know that you have to do it now or it's not going to be viable. And so, you know, they did that. They took them and um, we came home, you know, like there was, and it was just weird because I remember coming home and my sister-in-law was here with Ford, our youngest holding him. And she said, you guys go back to the hospital. I've got, I've got this. And I said, I just looked at her and I said, he's dead. And it's like the things that come out of your mouth, it, it, it like she was just in her face and I was just so yeah. numb. I, I, uh, I don't even know how to explain that feeling, but you're just, I think it's your body's way of protection mode. So you don't completely crumble. And then I just started cleaning my house. It was the trippiest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I mean, it makes complete sense to me. Like what else, what, you know, I mean, the whole thing you had a five week old. I mean, it's like everything, the most frazzled situation you could possibly be in. Right. What, from, from what I understand, and and this was a big news story in Orange County. And, and so from what I understand, it was a neighbor and it was a complete like accident and he was on his bike. Yeah. It was like a freak accident. Yeah. So I had never met this neighbor. It was a 28 year old girl. And this is the hard part because there was no eyewitnesses other than Jackson and the gal. But from my understanding, he was doing loop-de-loops with his friends and all the friends had passed through and the car had saw them. And I think she thought all the people were gone. And then there was one more. And so from all the reports and the people we have hired, he was hit twice first time was knocked off the bike. And the second time is actually what in fact killed him. It's really hard to say, obviously I haven't had conversation with her. And I, I mean, honestly, I don't even know if she really knows, but it was definitely, it's a bad design. The area of where we live is a bad design. It was a walkway. It was between two 
it wasn't even a major street. It was like garages and garages. And it's a pathway that people walk across. It's just a tricky thing. The police report says one thing, you know, talking with the driver hasn't really been an option. I think that's for legal reasons, right? But yeah, it could have just been an accident. I don't really know. Only those two know what really happened. Did I answer the question? Yeah. I'm getting kind of lost in the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, something that that I think about, right, is, I mean, I think about the inability or the ability, what would I do if, what would I do if, you know, your worst nightmare happens? How do you stay sober through something to that? I mean, the idea that one would stay sober, like, you know, and in your, your case, you weren't sober yet, but the idea that you wouldn't drink or that you wouldn't use, like that you would have the coping skills for that is insane to me. I, I can't even, I can't even imagine fathom what coping skills I would need for something like that. How did you proceed and how did, how did that experience take you to getting sober? Okay. The way I coped is I drank and yeah. I, I had no coping skills. And I remember actually that night when we came home from the hospital, I looked at my best friend, Natalie, and I was like, don't let me go dark. But I think in that moment, I knew right then and there what was going to happen because of my experience of my past and my drinking. It was just at first, you know, how it starts off always when you haven't drank for some time. For me, it was waking up like this was like one of the hardest things was waking up in the morning and realizing what had happened. Because, you know, when you sleep, you kind of forget. And then just that crippling, paralyzing, gut-wrenching feeling of how the hell am I going to live life? And I would just start drinking. And at first, it was just like to kind of relax me. And then fast forward, I pretty much did that up until I went to treatment. And at this point, this is probably the first time in my drinking career that my my body was physically addicted. Luckily, I had a full-time nanny that took care of my kids and I didn't have to do anything until about three o'clock. And then my husband came home and took care of the rest, but I was pretty useless. And I would remember waking up just feeling so disgusting inside, like physically sick inside and sweating my heart. Like I'd never felt those physical um, symptoms before. I would usually be sick in the morning and then tell myself I'm not going to drink and then literally pick up a drink just to function and get through. And I had reached out to my girlfriend, Lindsay, and I was like, I was drunk, of course. And I was like, I think I need help. And this is the funny thing. At this point, I had started to accumulate more sober friends. So every time I was drunk, I'd call my sober friends. And <laughs> it was just the weirdest thing. I was crying for help, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so the the day before I went to treatment, I remember we had the house cleaners here and my therapist used to come to my house because I wouldn't drive. I wouldn't get in a car. And obviously, cause I was drinking and I just remember, I don't actually remember a whole lot from that day, but that's the day I went into treatment and that kind of started my recovery journey. What was the detox and the coming to period like? Okay. Well, I was a total nightmare at detox. I think my blood alcohol level was like 0.298, which is insane that I was still even functioning. I was a total bitch to the check-in nurse. I I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. Then I'd be like, totally like switch, like happy, can I have a cigarette or what? I don't even know. Like I was, you know, you're just, you're a hot mess. And I went to detox. That was my first time ever in any kind of facility. And I slept, I slept a lot. And I remember the, I don't know if she was a supervisor or who she was, someone on the higher up came in and said, just checking on me. And she said, 
you know, I'm glad you're here. I I know about your story, but I want to help you be better because you do have two children still here. And I remember her saying that and being like, I was crying, I think. And I was like, I know, but I don't know. You know, she's like, just go back to bed. (laughs) And then I had slept when they transfer. She's like, you don't have to respond. Yeah. You just, you just lay back down, please. Lay back down. Stop (laughs) talking. Oh God. And then, okay. So then I'm at treatment, right? They moved me to this house. It's a beautiful place. Cause I was like telling my husband, I'm like, you better find a nice place for me to go. You know, he's like, okay, whatever. Just go. I get there. And I really don't remember the first week that much, but I heard I wasn't that pleasant to anyone. I remember saying to them, I don't have a problem. I am a grieving mother. When I get out of here, I'm drinking again. Like you guys know nothing. And so I was just kind of that like self-righteous attitude that I know I needed something to change, but I'm not one of you and had that judge. Right. If you had my problem, you'd do what I do. Which is so like looking back, like, okay, they're probably like, yeah, whatever. We see this all the time, (laughs) you know? And so I did the deal, but I never like, I went to the meetings. My God, these are so stupid. Never would identify as an alcoholic. That was the best. I would go to like, I liked the NA meetings the best because they were like kind of hardcore and they were like more fun. And I would just go and go, I'm Sarah. Like I wouldn't identify as an alcoholic and addict. And they're just looking at me like, you're nuts. Like you totally need to be here. You know, I remember the step work. I wouldn't do the step work. I think they motivated me by something, by telling me I could get phone privileges. I don't know. It was just, I tried to work the system, however. And then of course, like the last week I'm there, right. I'm kind of starting to like feel better. I still had the shakes, which was so crazy, but I was like mentally feeling a little bit, actually just feeling for the first time since he had passed. It was September. He had passed in May. So it was just a lot to process. And then I started kind of to feel safe there. Like I didn't want to go home. I did want to go home to see my kids, but I didn't want to go home because I was scared to like leave my bubble. I remember they, they're very scheduled in rehab and they had told me I was leaving on a certain date and I ended up having to go three days before. And I just remember that transition of not being ready and feeling super anxious. And I remember in the Uber saying, I think I'm just going to go to the liquor store get some wine. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I was like, okay, no, you can't do that. And I got home and I kind of like, you know what I mean? Like I just, Mm -hmm. it was already in my head, like the second I left rehab. And so I was like, this is not good. But I did in fact stay sober for about three months without working a program, just kind of on my own. My husband was still actively heavily drinking. I was okay with not drinking because I, what I knew was that I, I couldn't drink right now. I didn't, I didn't do good that way. And then Christmas came around and that was our first holiday without him. And I was pretty much drunk from that point on till about maybe like March or February. I think I stopped drinking because I wasn't feeling healthy and I couldn't do my workouts. Nothing to do with being an alcoholic, just so you know. And then what happened? And then it was COVID. So at this point, like, let me just touch on my husband and I a little bit. So we, at this point, we've grieved very differently as far as what grief looked like in our journey in that. He went back to work right away with two weeks. After two weeks of the incident, I stopped working completely. And when we got home, even from treatment, not to mention I was not drinking and he was, there was just like a huge disconnect between us. Like we, we were both so dead inside and numb that we didn't know how to be. We just were existing, like literally existing, trying to get to the next day. 
And so when I started drinking again, I became a very mean drunk because I was so angry and hurt inside. And I would start saying like really awful things to him. And so it was really creating an, an issue in our marriage. Like I wasn't sure where we were going to go. And I know that is really common with the couples that lose children that mm-hmm. they don't work out. Mm-hmm. And so our family were really fighting for us to like make it and stay together. But we just didn't have the willingness because we had no, we had nothing left to give. Yeah. So that was really hard. Here's a good place to talk about a bit about why we drink and what is difficult about stopping drinking, right? Which is you stop drinking and everything comes back, right? You have to deal with it without this anesthetic, right? What were some of the tools that you used? And then, you know, also how you used then when you got out or when you were in treatment rather, and then tools that you use now that help you stay sober through something that most of, you know, most of us as parents, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I, you know, I I have a son named Jackson. I have little boys. I can see that, you know, I get it. I get it. It's like, it's like something that could happen to any of us. And I have to tell you, like, I don't know how I have a lot of tools. I've been through a lot of stuff and that's when I just, I really don't know I can't picture in my mind how I would cope through something like that. And, and obviously, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'd reach out to, you know, I'd reach out to people who've been through it before, right? Like that's what we do, but a little bit about like what you what they taught you that gave you the willingness and the hope and the ability to take a step into each next day. So the tools that, that get me through today and the ones that I used was, I looked at this as a sense of if I can't do it for myself, I'm doing it for Jackson. So until I could do it for myself, I did it for him in honoring his life in a way and a living amends for the times that I was in my addiction and maybe he was affected by it. And mm-hmm. I did it for my two kids because I wanted to honor them. And I honestly, I didn't have the strength. I had nothing I couldn't do anything for myself. I had to use something else, which were my kids to do, do it for, you know, honestly, the will to even want to be alive with him, not in, in this world probably took like a good two years to where I was like, if a bus didn't hit me, I would, I wouldn't be disappointed. And I know that sounds so jacked, but it's like, you don't care because all you want to do is be with your child. I, that's not true for me today. Like he's with me in a different way now. And it's taken a really long time to get here and I still struggle with it, but I have the will to live today because my job is not done here on earth. Right. Right. And so that was, that was the place that they helped you. They helped you refocus on what was important and why you were still here. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes. And they helped me to navigate like that my purpose, there was a, there, and I had to believe, and I know everyone believes in something different, but what my higher power, my God is, I had to trust and believe in the fact that there was purpose in this. Like my God is not a um, punishing God. And so I couldn't imagine that he would take my son for nothing. There has to be a plan tied into this. And I needed to be here for that plan to play out. 
it wasn't, uh, there was nothing in me. I had to reach to other things to give me the strength to get out of bed, to brush my teeth, to make my bed, to, you know, live, to breathe. With your husband, did he, how did his drinking and his, and that play out in terms of the, the relationship and, and cause you guys have, have really forged a new path you know, today, what it looks like today is very different. How, how did we get to where you are today, which is remarkable? Thank you. So my husband went to treatment. I went to my parents' house for a month to kind of, we call it the ranch rehab. They live on a <laughs> ranch. So my parents are really gnarly. So I knew that I, there was, I couldn't get away with anything there. And we kind of did our recovery uh, separately mm-hmm. uh, for a while. And then as we came together, we do both today work a very different sober program. I'm very involved. I have to be in the middle or it's a sketchy place for me. Otherwise, he, however, does things differently. And that's okay. We're both sober today. And I don't feel like he is a dry drunk. I feel like we just need different things to in order to stay sober, which is okay. And that's taken a really long time for me to be okay with that as well. I hear I'm I'm being washed over with the Al-Anon <laughs> in your speak because yeah. I'm I'm in the similar situation where we're we're sober in different ways. And I know it, it's there's so much of it like we just need different like you just really you're like I'm you need something different. And there's this, you know, it comes over you. So yes, I understand that that struggle. It, uh, yeah. And Al-Anon has been a huge, uh, part of my recovery because I think that's what will take me out is people, places, or things that I'm not in control over because I'm really learning that I love to control things. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who are struggling with anger or deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it free for yourself for one month. And now back to the show. How does one stay sober? What does it look like through, you know, in, in your life? So it's, I mean, I don't want people to misread this in a different direction, but like, honestly, like I've never felt better in my life. I'm, days are not perfect. There will, it's, it's very different. My life is different. My life will never be the same again. No object, no person will ever be able to fill uh, the void that I have in my heart. But through the program, through the steps, the tools, I've been able to accept 
the things that I can't control. Yeah. And I tried to make the best of it. And I, I, I've done a lot of work. I, I have done a lot of therapy. I do a lot of EMDR to help me with these horrific images that yeah. are in my head that I don't know if they'll ever go away, but to help, you know, I've done a lot of spiritual healing. I've reached out in every area because I feel like I have to, and everything again I do is for my kids. Yeah. I want to show him that his mama is strong and I'm going to be the best version of myself because that is how I can make this situation right for me. And it gives me purpose. It just, it does. But I mean, it is not easy. Like there are days and it's crazy because it comes out of nowhere. Like you're driving and it's typically when I'm driving and a song comes on or um, driving by his old school was really tough. Or when I run into one of his little friends and I see how big they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't get to see him big. And that, and that's the stuff that, that kills me. And that I feel that I was like robbed of, even though I'm trying not to have that victim mentality is I don't get any new pictures of him. I don't get to see him do things that a mother should get to see her child do, you know? And that, that really takes me to a place that I have to kind of redirect and I have to do it quickly because I don't really allow myself to go down that dark hole because I know nothing comes out of it and it's not going to serve any purpose right now. It's not that I don't. How do you redirect? I literally am like in my head. I'm like, okay, we're not doing that. You know, like I feel it. I'll, I'll feel the emotion, but I have to like, stop it. I like cut it off. And, um, I pray, I read, I will throw myself into my kids. I just have a way of kind of have to turning it off. I don't know how exactly I do it, but I really haven't allowed myself unless I'm with like a trusted advisor, like a therapist, my sponsor to where I go to those places, because I don't know what going there looks like and being able to recover from that. Right. And it's, it scares me. It scares me. I don't want to give up the life that I have today. And that's the thing that sucks too, is I feel like the person I am today, I wish I could have been that for him. And I don't want to say that I was this horrible drunk mother, yeah. like never taking care of him or, you know, whatever, but it's like this version of me is, and I, I, I don't mean this in a cocky way, but it's beautiful. And like, it's honorable. And I feel like this is what my kids deserve. And I know he's looking down on me and I know he's happy And I'm praying that like, he's given me grace for having an addiction and being able to, um, live in recovery for today. And hopefully, you know, the days to come. Yeah. How do you manage fears that come up with the other kids? Oof, that's a good one. We're like, I'm lucky because they're still kind of little right now. Uh, almost five, almost three. and. I see my little one, my, my little guy, uh, he's a three-year-old. He is wild and he is a lot like his brother physically and personality wise. And I think about that often. He loves to be on motorcycles. He loves to ride bikes. He's like, can already do the things. And I'm thinking, how am I going to allow him this freedom to be who he is and not cripple him with what I've been through? Right. And honestly, I don't have that answer right now. I don't know what that looks like for me, but it is something, I mean, I just have to trust. I just have to trust. I I do a lot of God box stuff. I got to throw a lot of stuff in that God box. I don't know. Tell people about, tell people about the God box who don't know. Oh gosh. I finally just did it. My sponsors have been like, 
on me already. Um, my God box. It actually is a iPad mini box. It is not decorated great. Oh, really? <laughs> Because <laughs> I was because I was making excuses because it had mm-hmm. to be perfect, right? Right, right, right. And, of course. And my my friend Katie said, just get a damn box, tape it, and stab a slit in it, and throw things in. Yep. Yep. So I I literally did that, and my God box is where I write, you know, little sentences of things that I worry and fear about, and I shove it in my God box and I give it to God. And I didn't think it would be as effective as it is mm-hmm. until I did it, and it really has helped me to tangibly put something in and give it away. Yes. And I've been doing that a lot lately. I think I'm going to have to actually maybe upgrade my box. <laughs> Mine is a KiwiCo box. Like, you know, the key, the kids KiwiCo and my kids come into my room and they're like, mom, what's in the, you know, like what's in the box? Like, as if it's like a new problem, like stay away from my God. Oh get away from my box <laughs> stay away from my box yeah and it's totally this like it's totally <laughs> janky thing but it's really i don't know if you've had this experience but it's actually kind of funny to go and look at things like we had we like we had rats once in the house which is a horrible a whole other thing and i put like i'm giving you the, your rats back and <laughs> like i go and i look through of like all the things i've tangibly given back and it's it's actually funny because they're they have i can see and i don't know if you had this experience i can see how the, the things that i put in there i can today see that turn like they've worked themselves out like when i go back i'm like oh yeah i forgot about that or oh yeah like i can see that they've either worked themselves out or they're working themselves out. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, that has been my experience and it's crazy that I don't know if it's because we're actually tangibly putting it in there and letting go. Um, Cause sometimes it's harder for me to like say that just verbally. Me too. But it has really been helping because I've noticed that part of who I am and probably like touching on that fear again is me wanting to hold on to things so tightly. Mm-hmm. in fear that I am going to forget or that he will be forgotten. Yeah. So many things. Yeah. How do you talk to your kids about, or, you know, probably your, your daughter is your middle, right? Yeah. And how do you talk to your daughter and, and do you talk about him? How do you, you know, how, how, what's the conversation like in your home with regard to this topic? So I, he will never be forgotten in our home. He is always talked about, uh, luckily a month before the accident, I had a bunch of family photos taken. So I Mm -hmm. have some of the three of them. And so they're all lined up on my stairs. So when we walked down, I said, there's Alessa, there's Ford, there's Jackson. That's your brother. I don't, I mean, obviously the baby doesn't remember, but, um, Alessa, she was really, messed up from this whole thing. Him and her were very close. They were six years apart, but like they shared a room. He would jump in her crib and sleep with her. Like he was a great big brother to her. And when he passed, she completely stopped talking and like shut down. And so we've actually have been in therapy and just helping her work through her own trauma because she was little and she can't express it, but she was definitely affected. It's crazy because sometimes I'll talk to her like Jackson. And if she's having a hard day, she'll say, no, not now. It's like really crazy. And then someday she says, Jackson, my brother, you know? And so I think it's like honoring her feelings because, you know, some days I can handle it. And some days I'm like, I can't look at pictures right now. It's just too hard. And so 
being able to navigate that with her and giving her that space to heal how she needs to. But I mean, she, she probably got it the worst out of all of us because her parents were gone. Her brother was gone. There was this new baby, millions of people in our home. I mean, she was just, she was, she was in it. Yeah. I think that's amazing that you guys are getting her professional help because I think that's one of the things that's so important. I always say to people, when you don't know what to do and there's a situation that's too complicated or there's a situation you haven't been through before, find someone who either knows about that situation or has been through that situation before. What we, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are people out there who can help and there's no shame in reaching out and finding those people, talking to those people. You don't have to do what they say, but so, sometimes we aren't equipped to help, especially in a moment where we're needing help too. Absolutely. And I mean, we all needed help. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) These people though, I've seen in them bring my daughter literally back to life. Mm. We had people in our home five days a week, every morning working with her. And she today is a very happy and bright little girl, but it was just literally seeing the lights go back in her. And I think too, like from what I hear, that's kind of like what has happened with my husband and I. Like we started like through all of our help, through our recovery, we've been able to like get this new version of ourselves. Also, we've learned, I've gotten these tools to help me like process this a little and like be okay with not being okay sometimes and feeling sad. I think as alcoholics, the reason I, I don't want to feel, Yeah, you know, feeling is not something I'm interested in doing. And, and no one can blame you for that. You know, I mean, these are, you know, there's like, there's, I think so many of us, there's, oh, we don't want to feel right. And it's like, well, too bad, you know, and then there's a circumstance that we all go. Yeah. You know, we would collectively understandably, but the reality is that you can't run from it forever. And that was what you learned in this process that you can't run from it forever. And that there are tools. And it sounds to me like a lot of what you're saying is, you know, when we talked about how do you parent your, your other kids with this fear? And it's like a day at a time, right? Like, it's like, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to make that decision when it comes down to it, but today I don't have to make it or today I'm going to make this decision. And that's as far as I can go with it. And that's what helps us get a lot get through a lot of this stuff, which is like, I don't know, I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to do Wednesday things on Wednesday. Absolutely. And I think you hit it like, like right there. It's like, I do what I can do today because when I future trip like that, it gets me in a a tailspin. And that's like, again, not a good space for me to be in, but I do want to say really quick. I remember my therapist, I don't remember exactly when, but she's, she said, we have two choices here. And this therapist I love, she's like literally helped save my life. And she's very familiar with addiction. She's worked in like recovery homes. It's just, it's amazing. She's like, we have two options. You can die along with him or you can live whatever you want to pick. Let me know. And I chose to stay. And then she said, okay, if you're going to choose to stay, the only way to the other side is through. You've got to get through to get to the other side. And I never knew what she meant by that. And now I do, I see it like I had to do the uncomfortable stuff. 
I had to, when I got back from COVID, I had to put myself in the sober group with the girls. I'm like, someone's got to like me here. You know, I'm going to click with someone. And I just had to do the uncomfortable things. I didn't know who I was. My identity as a mother was stripping. Being sober, I was just like starting fresh. And I just put myself out there and I was like, I'm just going to get through. And I did. And I'm still doing it today. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's been incredible to watch. And, you know, I know that a lot of people are are pulling for you and, and you share about your grief and you share about, you know, on social media and you share about this stuff. And I think it's really important. It gets a lot of us thinking, right? When we see that, it gets a lot of us thinking. And, and I don't mean this as like, <laughs> I don't mean this as like, reminds us to be grateful, but like I, there are days where I'm worried about the 10 things on my to-do list. And I forget, I get, you get so wrapped up in the bullshit of whatever is going on in my head, I forget to be, you know, you'll say like, I, you know, I saw, I think I saw this on social media where you were talking about grief and, and, you know, honoring this person and enjoying these moments. And, and I was like, yeah, what am I worried about? Like, why, 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 like pay attention, pay it, be present, stop making the list in your head while you're in bed. You know, that's stuff that someone who's who, who's had a different experience can teach and remind us and it's valuable it's important i'm grateful for it because it's so easy to get bogged down in the like stupid drama that and forget what the point is i think it's just a great reminder like first of all we can do hard things we can do really hard things really really hard things but we can't do them alone <laughs> and and it requires doing hard things means you have to feel hard feelings and that's really what you did right you like you got to this place you're like this alcohol isn't working anymore this is what i have to do and and you followed people who had been down that path before and it's it's amazing it's beautiful what would you say to someone where you were in, in 2020. It's hard with the grief because I think there's like no rule book on that, but I have had the privilege of work of talking with some moms who are in unfortunate situations like mine. But I can say from my, from my experience, as far as like the grieving goes, time is a good tool. It is, it has helped. It does not heal all. I don't think that's even a possibility, but it, the time, the time is a good thing. Sometimes it feels like it gets harder before it gets better hmm. and it comes in waves, but I, for me, it has helped and I am able to carry more and process more and heal more with more time. As far as sobriety goes, I'm so freaking glad I stayed. I honestly, I just did whatever they said. If they said, sit down and shut up and listen, I did it. I was so desperate and so willing to have a different life. I didn't care what I had to do. I was really motivated to make things in my life better. I, I just stuck with it. I literally, I did everything that I didn't want to do that my mind was telling me to do. I did the opposite. <laughs> and I <laughs> like when this is a good example, it's like when I chose to hang out with bad people and did bad things, that's what happened. So I chose out to hang out with the people who I knew were doing the right things to get me in the right places. And I made my connections with so many amazing, rad, authentic women mm. that I wanted to, like, I looked at their life and was like, I want that. I want that. I want that. I can truly say today I have whatever my version of that is supposed to be. And I have a support system of women that I could call at any point in time and who I really respect 
and that I, I had that, but it, uh, not really, you know what I mean? Like I still have my good friends that I've known a while, but a lot of my friends were party friends and that's not my experience today. Yeah. Yeah. What are the resources that you talked about with regard to your daughter? If, if anyone is hearing yeah. this and has children that need help that they can't, they can't, they're like, look, I, I only, I can barely do me. What were the resources that you reached out to that were able to help your daughter? So I contact regional center because kids with, and she qualified at this point for uh, some like spectrum disorder disabilities because she wasn't talking. Right. And so regional center is a great resource to use from zero to three. They have someone come out and evaluate uh, specific services that she needed. And they had her in ABA, speech, OT, PT, like all of the things. And that is like state funded. I don't think you have to pay for any of that. And then I used also uh, an ABA company that I really liked and they were so professional. And I do like intense speech therapy with her still to this day, because I think part of her coping mechanisms was her binky. And so she sucked on that thing so much that it actually reshaped the, the form of her tongue. I know that sounds bizarre, but it is what it is, you know? Also, another thing that we're looking into right now is um, like paint therapy. Mm-hmm. Because she can't really verbal. I mean, as adults, we can barely verbalize what we're trying to say half the time. Like, we don't know. We're just mad. We're sad. And so drawing that type of thing, there's we're looking into. And I actually got her into like a movement therapy because I feel like kids like to just move and do all kinds of things and express themselves. And my point in that was just helping to release any trauma that's been stored in her body or in her brain. And I'm sure we all need therapy at some point, right? So as she gets older as an adult, she can take those steps, but that's what we can do for her right now at age four, almost five. I love that. I love that. Yeah, definitely. There are a lot of state-funded resources to look into and and uh, we just don't know about them and, until until we need them. So definitely, I will put those in the show notes for people who are curious. Do you have a place where people can follow your journey if they so choose? Yes. I share a lot about my journey on my Instagram handle, which is compost underscore mama. I kind of share a variety of things, but that has been a sounding board for me. Typically after I journal, meditate, or have some kind of breakthrough, I feel like my purpose of sharing my story vulnerably is if it helps one person, grief is grief, right? You don't have to have something as extreme as what I went through, but the feelings are there. Sometimes these things aren't talked about. Yeah, And I think if I didn't have the ability to share about my experience or get it out, I don't know if I would be able to stay sober with it all bottled up. And that's just my experience. Everyone deals with things differently. And I just, I don't want people to feel alone. And I want them to know there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a cakewalk. It's taken me work and willingness to do so. But like, I'm so glad I stayed. I always say that like in my journal and when I'm writing to Jackson, I'm so glad I stayed to like not end my story there, not end my story. A mom loses her son and then loses her own life. You know, like I chose to be strong for you, for your siblings. I stayed for you. And I'm so glad I did. I really am. Yeah. I'm so glad you did too. And I'm really grateful for you for coming on and sharing your story and being vulnerable in this forum. It means a lot. And it's really, 
a beautiful story in, in the most genuine, authentic way. So thank you so much for being here and doing that. And I, I really, it's been an amazing experience for me and, and uh, really just excited to see where your journey goes next. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering over 70 weekly online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs or alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.